You're listening to another podcast from I'dRatherBeWriting.com. My name is Tom Johnson, and today I'm talking with Bob Watson, who recently completed a PhD uh, at a program at the UW, um, and I'm going to have him talk a little bit about that. Uh, Bob, tell me, tell me about your program and what you studied there. So the uh, the program is the Human Centered Design and Engineering uh, uh, in the uh, School of Engineering at the University of Washington. And it, uh, I've been going there for, well, uh, since about 2007, I think, is when I started. Uh, and it's the, the program's changed a bit. I started as a technical writing major, uh, but uh, kind of morphed with the department into more of a user research, user-centered design sort of uh, program. And for my PhD, uh, sort of mixed the, I mixed those two together and looked at technical writing through a user-centered design lens uh, to see what made it tick. Now, your dissertation was had something to do with uh, myth-busting, testing, API documentation. What was the focus of that? Well, the, uh, that's kind of how it ended up. That wasn't what I had in mind at the beginning, but that's, that's how research works is uh, you get to find out things you weren't... Uh, uh, necessarily expecting um, the dissertation uh, was on um, I studied the how design elements and the content uh, the information contained in API reference topics influenced how software developers would perceive the topics and how those changes would influence uh, their performance using the topics. The performance I looked at was how quickly they could assess the relevance of a topic as well as how accurately they could make those assessments. So the scenario was is uh, I gave them a task. Uh, you're doing something and you need to look up some information. Uh, does this, does the topic that, you're, you know, the, the, that came next uh, and have the information you need? And so it was a, you know, almost a reading comprehension, uh, but you know, it's looking for information in the topic. And so what I wanted to see is how moving uh, or, or changing the amount of information and changing the visual design of the page would influence how quickly uh, the people, the, you know, the participants uh, would be able to find the information on the page or determine that the topic uh, didn't have the information. Some of the topics did have the information and some didn't. So that way we could uh, see if that mattered. And so, so oh. You, you mentioned uh, two things there the amount of information and the visual design of the page. Can you talk a little bit about each one of those? Like what, you know, especially if, if you're writing API documentation, what are some takeaways from these two kind of aspects? Um, well, in a study I did a couple of years ago, we looked at uh, 33 different, uh, uh, the documentation for 33 different APIs and saw quite a range of uh I don't know how to call it, styles. Uh, some were quite detailed. Some were uh, barely worthy of the name documentation. Some were very elegantly designed. Some were, um, I don't know if you're familiar with Unix man pages, but it's all, what, 12-point courier kind of documentation. And so uh, that made me wonder, like, does that range of uh, content and and uh, visual design have an effect on how well people can use the documentation because you know a, a lot of the uh, literature and writing for the web and designing for the web says that all those things are important uh, you know in order to make it easy for the reader to find the information and not jump off the page and things like that so I wanted to see if that would if that uh, had an influence on API documentation and so I built a study that had uh, four different variations uh, you know, of each, you know, high design, low design, uh, detailed content, sort of lightweight content, and uh, and then ran through the study, and it turns out uh, what the what we found was that the uh, the variations had more of an effect on perception of the credibility and the appearance of the content of the topics than it did on the performance. The only performance indicator we saw was that less content was faster to assess than more content, which 
which is kind of good because that proved at least the uh, something reasonable or expected came out of the uh, the experiment. Um, but uh, that's really interesting. So um, let me pick up on that uh, on that last point. So less content made it so that people could more quickly assess the content there and and get the information. Um, but but does that mean that they found the information, or does that only mean they quickly determined whether or not the page contained answers they were looking for? Uh, there wasn't any difference between uh, whether they found it or didn't. They they made that determination in about the same amount of time. So they either decided the page had the answer or decided the page didn't have the answer in about the same amount of time. And that was one of the things that I thought was rather interesting is that whether the topic had the information they were looking for or didn't, they spent almost the same amount of time trying to come up with that decision. Uh, you know, I, I would have expected that if it had the information and it was easy to find, that would happen faster than if it didn't have the information, or they, you know, they might be looking around for it uh, and you know, hoping to find it but not. But it turns out in our experiment that... Uh, they spend about the same amount. They spend about the same amount of time, either way. And so I thought that was kind of interesting. So whether whether the page is is packed with information or it's has sparse information, people found the answer approximately in the same amount of time. Uh, no, no, that was the only thing that was different is whether the page had the information or didn't have the information they were looking for. Uh, the pages that had less information, uh, they spent less time on assessing than the pages that had more information. Hmm. I, I, I put this on my website, so I have the examples. Uh, and so it's, it's easier to see than it is maybe to explain. Uh, oh, but, uh, okay. But yeah, so yeah. less content's faster, but less credible and less professional. Uh, whether the topic has or doesn't have the information, the people spent the same amount of time looking at the topic either way. So uh, let's look at the visual design part. Um, so you said that if, if the site is poorly designed, it hurts the credibility and lowers the perception, uh, I don't know, perception of the documentation overall. Um, but it didn't impact their actual performance in using it. Is that right? Uh, close, yes. Uh, poorly designed, I, I want to pick up on that. Um, I tried in all of the tests and all of the samples to have reasonably designed content. So I didn't want to test good content against bad content because uh, that didn't seem realistic. I wanted to test variations of what we what I what we found as good content in the APIs that we studied, and so they were all I don't know representative. The four variations we tested were representative of documentation that we'd seen in the previous study, and so they were they're all you know good. Clearly, some look better than others because they had uh, different type faces, better formatting uh, at the fancy end, at the, the simple end. It was just one font all the way through and the only formatting was indenting a little bit. But the visual design of the page didn't have any uh, significant effect on how quickly people assessed the, the topic. So having formats and bold headers and boxes and things, you know, the visual uh, elements that might make it easier to parse didn't make it any easier than just a single font with some indenting. Hmm. That's interesting. So, so do you think that a lot of these APIs uh, on the web uh, kind of overemphasize the design element and put too much energy into that? Um, uh, I don't know uh, because what the what the design did influence was credibility and professionalism and the professional appearance rating, and so. Whether uh, you could look at it, if those factors are important, then that might be worthwhile to spend some time on because it'll give your uh, site more credibility, but not a f not in not uh, it won't make you know how fast they decide determine the validity. Uh, it won't make it any faster or slower, but it will leave them with a more credible feeling. So, so if you if your documentation's one of its purposes is per, to perhaps sell the product, you know, like if people are browsing different products and they look at your documentation and they're impressed and think it's very credible, but, you know, they haven't even bothered to use it yet because they haven't even, I mean, they haven't, they haven't started to use it because they haven't purchased a product, then it could be an important factor. Yeah, you know, and that just depends on where your product 
is relative to the market and the audience. Uh, but yeah, you know, and that that's one of the things is that you there is really no one size fits all answer. Like if you do this, everything will be better. Uh, it's all a trade off. You know, if you do this, you know, it'll be more credible, but it might be, uh, 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 you know, might take more time to put together. Uh, so if that's worth it, great. If not, well, then you can make a, an informed uh, trade off. So I, I, I want to ask one more question and then I'll jump into some other questions. But uh, so today I was I was writing a page in an API documentation uh, uh, set of uh, topics and so forth. And I had a lot of detail about what a certain code sample is doing. And I wasn't sure if maybe I had too much detail if uh, programmers don't want to see that much content on the page. Um, what would you say, I don't know if this really exactly relates, but how much should uh, technical writers spend explaining what code samples are doing and their purpose and so forth? Or should they leave pages somewhat sparse and not heavily kind of commented and annotated? Uh, yeah, the, uh, the answer to that is it depends. Uh, one of the things uh, when I was thinking about this before uh, – you know, before the interview, was the uh, uh, one of the things that kind of came out of the research is, at sort of a uh, higher level is that w- the the really big factor in making any of those decisions is your uh, the relationship between the audience, the technology, and uh, and the market, because all of those factors come together to decide what's how much is too much, how much is too little. Uh, because in any combination of that matrix, you end up with a different answer. Uh, if you have, for example, an audience that's relatively new and isn't going to necessarily understand what you're doing, or you have a technology that's new and uh, isn't going to be familiar, or you might need more explanation. If it's sort of a variation of something that's already out there, you probably don't need as much. Um, and so... It's it's there. I don't think there's any one right answer. There's just the right answer for your particular scenario. Now you have a background in engineering, right? You said you worked for different companies for twenty years or something. Can you tell me about kind of your background in engineering and and why you decided to get a PhD? Well, that's a long story. I hope we don't use up your whole podcast with that. Um, but I started off as a, actually an electronics technician working on radio equipment uh, back in the day um, and then went into uh, software and did software engineering for about 17 years and then went into technical writing. Um, and that was kind of a, a, a oh, just kind of a, I don't know, a bullheaded move, I suppose, uh, thinking that... Uh, my my software wasn't getting its visibility or wasn't getting used because the documentation was bad. And so if only I wrote the documentation, that would solve all the problems. Uh, well, that quickly schooled me um, <laughs> because I, I've since learned that it takes more than just documentation to make the software work. Um, that maybe maybe designing the software to be more usable might be a, uh, an important factor. Uh, so, you know, one of these days I'd like to go back and you know have a talk with myself. But... Uh, uh, in the meantime, uh, the uh, it's been interesting to put a lot of that in perspective and think back to like, well, if I'd only known that. But uh, uh, you know, best you can do is go forward. Um, but you know, the, one of the things that I thought uh, that that kind of I was getting kind of burned out on um, on engineering because it seemed like I was just solving the same problems over and over again, uh, maybe using a different language, but the the I think I don't think it was the problems that were the same in retrospect, but just you know I was using the same methods and that was getting uh, you know I don't know monotonous, and so technical writing looked new and and different and it seemed like you know I might be able to uh, uh, turn that on its ear with all I knew about software engineering. Uh, well, it turned out that that wasn't the case, um, and coming into writing, uh, the one of the things that shocked me from engineering was how arbitrary seemed, things seemed. And, you know, the rules seemed arbitrary, the procedure seemed arbitrary. I couldn't get, you know, any, well, we do this because it's better than that. It's just this is the way we do it. You know, there was just because, well, why, why do we have to have a comma before which? Because, well, that's just the way we do it. Um, 
you know, and so uh, there was the best practices that were tossed around, but I could never get any, you know, like, why is that the best practice? I kept asking why. You know, those are my engineering uh, and uh, mind in, in, in the writing world. And uh, that always just got me in trouble. And so I went to, I thought, well, you know, I guess if I can't get the answers here, I'll just go to school and find them. And that only took seven years or, of school. Uh, and I still don't know that I have the answers. But it's been an interesting journey. Um, uh, that's, that's a cool path you've taken. Um, you know, I've, I've never heard of a software engineer turning towards tech com to try to solve the problems that they're running into with the software. I think that's, that's unique. Um, t tell me now, now that you uh, have a PhD, what are you going to do? Are you going to go back into the practitioner realm or were you always still in there? Was the educational program a part-time thing or what are your plans? Well, I've always been um, working uh, as I've gone to school. I mean, ever since my bachelor's degree, um, I've, so I've I've never stopped working to go to school or stopped school to go to work. It's they've always been uh, concurrent, and so the uh, practitioner academic uh, discussions kind of an interesting one for me because I don't know if I'm both or neither or somewhere in between. Um, I guess it just depends on who I'm talking to, um, but. Um, I like the you know I like the practice because it's you know it turns out something that uh, people use and I like the academic because you get to to like take things apart and peek inside and see how they work, um, and and so you know I hope I don't have to decide between one because <laughs> I like them both. Um, so you said that that one of the reasons one of the things that drew you to the academia is the desire to solve some of these problems to learn and, and figure out how to, how to solve them. Do you feel like the program helped you accomplish those goals? Did you solve problems? Um, did you find, do you feel like you, you, uh, have some more answers than when you started? Um, Ooh, you know, as many as I would have liked. Um, but what it did teach is a method to find the answers. It's just that some of those answers take a long time to figure out. Uh, you know, like my dissertation project, that was only supposed to take a year, and it took like three years or so. Uh, so research has its own schedule, um, which is why I try to keep it separate from work, because delivering on a deadline is a little harder when you kind of, you know, the, uh, the, the, the comparison I'd make for someone who hasn't done that, you know, it's like the difference between building a road and driving on a road. Uh, whereas, you know, research building is more like building a road where you, you know, you're going into, uh, uh, unpaved territory and finding the right path and laying the pavement, you know, and then everybody comes along afterwards and drives over it. But, um, you know, so it's, it's, it's hard to schedule that when you're trying to build a road, you don't even have a map yet. Um, and, and that's, that's a lot. That's how I would characterize the research. Um, whereas practice is, you know, finding which road you want to take and then taking it. Um, and so both are different, um, different kind of approaches to the problem and different deliverables too. So uh, the um, interesting answer uh, to, to, to note that, you know, it taught you the methods to find answers. Um, you know, my, my impression when I read through and I, I don't do it very much, uh, the, technical communication journal is that the research methods that are described are very, very rigorous and academic and very scientific and almost, uh, one could say, uh, overblown, like for, for what they're trying to, to get a, a sense of, uh, do you really have to go through such rigorous methods to find answers to some of these questions? Um, Maybe not to find the answer, but uh, I think it gets back to what's the purpose of the research. You know, it's like, uh, do you need a solid foundation for your house? Mm, no, unless you get an earthquake, then you might want one. Um, and, you know, and if the research, you know, the research is, um, is additive, so my research is built on someone else's research, which is built on someone else's research. And so if, you know, uh, if, that, if I'm building my research on research that isn't really sound, then that makes my research unsound. 
and then that makes whoever you know, applies mine somewhat shaky, and then we're not really building knowledge. Um, we're just, mm. you know, kind of passing on rumors or something. Um, and so in the sense that it has to provide a solid foundation, yes, is, you know, when I'm working as a technical writer, do I need that? Not so much, you know, because I'm working to a different goal. Uh, my writing has to be accurate enough to what it's, what it's uh, the audience that's going to read it. Um, they're going to use it and go on to something else. And they're probably not going to build something, um, you know, it has to be accurate enough for them to build their software, um, but not much beyond that. Whereas, um, you know, the research that I would publish has to be good enough for someone else to use in their research and then, and so on uh, down the line. You mentioned that you, you focused on some myth busting, um, and this kind of relates to maybe people who, who would build on inaccurate research, as you're noting, you know, is one of the problems. What are some of the myths that you're, you're talking about that, you, that you're examining and, and turning over? Well, one of the things, you know, coming from software development where testing is sort of integral to that, uh, it was kind of odd that they don't test documentation. That's not like uh, part of the thing. I know you've got a, a series of blog posts talking about that, and it's really good to get that to start exploring and ask that question because I don't think it gets reviewed enough. Um, and uh, but yeah, you know, it's like uh, and then thinking about testing. There's various levels of testing. Uh, the testing that uh, you're talking about, I think, is like pre-release testing in a lot of it. it's like validation and verification and making sure. You know, the documentation is accurate and the procedures are usable and things like that. Uh, the testing that I've been f focusing on myself is like after the publication is uh, what I call goal testing. Is is the documentation doing what we want it to? You know, is it, you know, making people develop software faster? Is it uh, uh, helping people find answers quicker? You know, whatever the goal of the documentation is. Um, identify that goal and then measure that goal to see if it's delivering. And, uh, you know, that's uh, some of the myths I've seen. It's like, now you can't test that. Uh, you need a large population to get uh, data that's usable, things like that. And those are true in some cases, but that doesn't mean they're true all the time. And I think that's the, I think that for my engineering uh, perspective, that's the part of the documentation that's always troubled me is uh, not having the parameters to make decisions like that. Like, is this a testable question? Is this not a testable question? Is this a measurable goal? Is it not a measurable goal? Do we care if it's a measurable goal? You know, answering those kind of questions because that's those are fundamental to measuring the performance. You know, is the documentation performing? Um, you know, and in some some sorts of documentation, that's a little easier. Like uh, uh, commercial documentation that's supposed to produce revenue. Uh, that has a more tangible metric, you know, like, is it getting people to click through? Is it getting people to, to convert to sales and things like that? But for information and help topics, those have goals, but I don't think they're quite as clearly articulated. And if they aren't articulated, then they can't be measured. And so you have to like, well, why are we writing this? If we can't, if we don't know what the goal is and we can't measure it, you know, how do we know it's doing any good and we're not just wasting our time? And those kind of questions bother me. <laughs> Um, uh, but they're still tough, you know, so that's, that's what I'm looking at in my testing is how to, uh, clarify and measure those goals in my, uh, I, I tried some of that in the, uh, research in the dissertation. So I'm working on one of my, my post dissertation projects is just try to refine that method and make it a little easier to apply so that, you know, for the practitioners testing their documentation doesn't have to be you know, a complicated and arduous task. It can make that just part of the publishing process or something like that, ideally. Well, I, I'm glad you've brought this topic up because I, I am really convinced that testing is, is the key to, like, good documentation. I mean, it's it's super undervalued in our profession. And I like your division of, of pre-release testing and post-release testing. Uh, right now at a project I'm working on, I'm in the pre-release testing stage, but next week, um, when we launch launch the release or, or push out the release, um, my immediate task is to go work on some other project. Uh, when really I should switch over into the goal 
goal testing, as you say. Um, but but that's hard because users aren't near me. I, I don't interact with them. People have expectations for me on other projects, so I don't have a lot of time. Tell me, how, how do I go about goal testing in a practical way without a usability lab and without uh, user counsel and things like that? Well, that's uh, part of what my, the paper I'm presenting uh, um, the, well, a week from today. I don't know if, when that comes in the blog post, but uh, uh, next week at the HCII conference in Los Angeles, uh, the paper I'm presenting is how to relate your documentation to users' goals or the reader's goals, and then I use that re relationship to identify what sort of metrics you could uh, test and measure uh, and when to test and measure. Because some goals aren't easily tested in the, uh, you know, in the web experience because a lot, of the doc a lot of the documentation that I write, the reader's goal is outside the web experience. Like... Um, they're going to read something about an API to do programming someplace else, not in the browser. And so it's hard to get feedback from, you know, like, how did this help you? It's like, well, I won't know, and they won't know until they've put it in their program, and then they'll probably forget because they're doing everything else in their program. Um, and so getting feedback on that interaction might be tough because the distance between the reader's goal and the documentation uh, isn't very close. Uh, other things where the, the that are easier to measure uh, are, you know, where the web experience and the user's experience are overlapped. You know, like filling out a form on a website or something like that. Um, and so, but the 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 point of all that is to identify the different sorts of interactions that readers have with the web and the different goals that they have, so that you understand. Uh, one, what the goal is, so you can address that, and two, where and how the best place to measure that is. And so I'm trying to, to, to clear that up to identify um, you know, categorize, categories of topics and then the corresponding uh, measure to get the feedback. If that makes sense. That's my insight. paper in five minutes or, or less, but... Uh, that's that's the goal. I, I'm actually super interested in this, um, and that's cool that you're presenting a paper on this. I, I, I'm, I'm curious to know more about it. Like, you know, I like that you're talking about figuring out the exact goals, and and your with the API documentation helps me see that because it is harder to measure exactly what their goal is. I mean, you could look at. Um, I was just trying to think of some other factors. Like, could they find the topic? Um, could they understand the topic? Did they successfully implement it? Those are tough things to measure because unless you have somebody sitting down or in a room and you're watching them go through it raw, uh, how else do you kind of figure these things out? Um, I mean, do you do you, uh, do, you, do you take account of how many um, points of feedback were were logged against your documentation or support cases or questions or or bugs or, or other kinds um, of things? Depending on the question you want answered, I suppose some of those might help. You know, the, uh, I, I think for the type of documentation, you know, like a reference topic, uh, it's tough because they're coming into the topic for a very short period of time trying to do something else. You know, they aren't there to enjoy your reference topic, as, you know, as a work of art or something. Uh, it's there to get them to the next step in their task. And so um, getting detailed information while they're in the course of a task is probably going to be difficult because, you know, ideally your reference topic isn't presenting much of a load on the reader. It's just give, filling in that blank that they need to go on to the next step. Um, other topics that they might have more engagement in, like, you know, a tutorial or uh, you know, a procedure or something like that, then you might be able to get a little more of their time because the, the document's a bigger factor of the uh, interaction. But even then, you know, is there, if their goal isn't to, you know, to use the documentation for something else, you might have to look at different methods um, to collect the feedback um, from, from, you know, again, from, from, from that from that particular interaction. 
What about what about tools that measure browser interactions, like Google Google Analytics? If you see lots of hits uh, all over the place, maybe tree map. What is it? There's a tool called TreeJack that tells you their path through the content. Do you ever? look at the uh, the results analytically that way and try to measure whether it was successful? Um, I have, and I, I can't say that I've found that to be particularly satisfying. You know, it's uh, one of the things that's awkward is to have, like, answer-driven questions. It's like, you know, Google Analytics gives you a bunch of answers, but they're answers to questions you're not asking, <laughs> you know, in the case of help content especially. Um, you know, knowing that people saw the page, okay, that's good. My website's getting activity, but does that mean it's it's useful or or not? You know, you, it, for help content, you really need to get them to talk to you, uh, whether it's through feedback. You know, was this helpful? You know, did you find what you're looking for? Uh, whatever questions you can ask, you know, the the, the actual question is going to depend on on the reader's goal and the content. Um, but you need them to they they need to talk to you because their experience in isn't. You know, or their goal isn't in the website. The website's a means to another end that's not in the website. And so you need to get them to talk to you and tell you how that experience went in some way. So so you're saying the best strategy would be to reach out to users who have used the documentation and just get their feedback about their experience, ask them if they were successful or frustrated that kind of approach? uh yeah but it's i think that you can't just in a lot of cases you can't just ask so how was that documentation i think the response is going to be what documentation unless it's really good or really bad uh it's probably not going to leave a lasting impression so knowing where and when to ask the question is, is part of what i talk about in the paper and trying to find ways that are more organic to their experience you know like uh one of the examples in the paper, um, I don't know if this is going to come out before or after my talk, um, but you know, it's like if if you have an example where you're looking up something on the web to do something outside of the web, um, how would you get feedback about that? You know, like uh, for like a, a recipe site, you might ask for you know, put a picture on social media, uh, you know, tweet tweet us a picture of what you cooked. Uh, for um, you know, programming, you know. Getting, you know, sending an email or something like that. And a lot of, you know, the, the, the method is going to be dependent on, you know, your relationship with the reader. Uh, you know, if there's somebody at a distance you don't have any relationship with, you know, sending them an email might be a little creepy. You know, if they're part of a community or they've registered, uh, you know, to use your service or something like that, where you've got a little more, a closer relationship, then, you know, asking them questions might not be as you know, they, they, that actually might be favorable, you know, as, as a way to build the community, you know, and get feedback. Um, so there's a lot of ways to do it, you know, and I think a lot of, you know, it's knowing the reader's situation. Again, it gets back to the audience, the, the product and the, and the market to know kind of what the best path to, to take, you know, to get that information. I don't, I don't think there's a one-size-fits-all uh, approach, or at least I haven't seen one yet. What about uh, taking maybe another person at work, maybe another tech writer, maybe a new engineer or product manager, and sitting them down in a room and just asking them to perform a number of tasks that will force them into the documentation and then observing how they how they do? I mean, it's not the right audience, but it's like Somebody, what are your thoughts on that approach? Oh, um, I've done it, uh, so I can't say that it's bad. Uh, I think I think the, the 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 thing to consider in any of those approaches is to understand the limits. You know, like if this person, like you know, I've used the you know, in fact, I try to uh, to pounce on the new people as they come in when we get new engineers. You know, it's like okay, so you got to learn this stuff. I'm going to watch. You know, and I'll give you a Starbucks card if you let me. And then they just go through and they look up in the tasks. I say, so what was the first thing you wanted to learn? You know, and treat it sort of like a usability study and, ha and watch how they go through the site. You know, because we have, they, they learn a lot of our basic information from the help site, you know. And so that's our, they're the perfect new customer representative because they're from outside the company. They haven't been familiarized with everything. So they're looking and exploring like a new customer might. 
and you know and and that's yielded a lot of insights and it's it's broken a lot of our um you know i don't know i guess if they're broken they're misconceptions of how uh, the readers you know are using the site you know we like to assume oh they're never using that and it turns out oh they use that all the time like oh well now we know <laughs> you know and you wouldn't know that by asking someone in the company who's already found shortcuts or you know they've got a you know they've got the list of the top five pages to look at from a friend or something like that, um, and those sort of shortcuts creep into the test. And so, when you get a new person, they're I think more representative of a new customer. If we can get a new customer, that's even better. But you know when you get people that start to stray from that, that aren't necessarily developers, they're going to have a different approach. They're going to have different goals then you might not be able to get the same type of information. Uh, so, so again, it's making sure that you don't uh, kind of exceed the bounds of your test subject. You know, if, if you're doing something that's in line with their experience and their goals, great. If you're trying to get them to do something that they wouldn't normally do, like, you know, get a project manager to look up API reference details or something like that, you know, then you might want to temper, you know, how far you, you know, temper your observations with that context. How how about reader comprehension tests? Uh, I saw this written up somewhere where where somebody would give very specific questions, asking the user basically if they understood the content uh, by asking them a quiz like you know what's the value what's the maximum limit that you should enter for x or something rather than hey did you find this helpful uh, what do you think of these very specific kind of quizzes to give to users um you know again it depends on the context if you know in the case of a tutorial that might be a natural step in the tutorial like you know as you're going through this would you pick the a or the b like oh i picked the b well you might want to consider the a because uh you know, of X, Y, and Z, you know, that kind of thing. In response to a API reference topic where their goal is to do something else with that information, quizzing them on it might be kind of an imposition. Um, so, it, again, those are, that's a great tool, uh, but like any tool, you want to make sure that it's going to fit the task, um, you know, that you can treat that as a game. Oh, you've scored 47 correct answers. Let's go for 50. Um, you know, I mean, that might work in some contexts and that might be totally annoying in another context. Um, and so that's the thing is that it all kind of, all of these things really depend on the context, which makes it complicated because then that means we now have to understand the context really well to do the right thing. It, you've given me a lot of ideas actually just talking with you about how I can do some testing because in my company we have, it's a, it's a small, uh, company where our division there's no more than 25 or 35 people in our office but there's several different project teams and i'm thinking that i could get engineers on other project teams to test out the documentation because it's semi-relevant they're not completely unrelated topics but they wouldn't be that familiar with them but but here's the problem i can already anticipate i go over to uh my friend the engineer and ask him or her Hey, I, I'm hoping to borrow like three hours of your time <laughs> uh, to to go test this documentation, and they'll be like, ah, "I don't have that time. I'm busy. I've got all kinds of stuff to do." Yada yada yada. And and I myself, uh, you know, as I said, as soon as I finish this release, I've got another project who's just like waiting for documentation. Um, so this user testing, goal testing, we all know it's really important. We know we should do it. We know our documentation would be leaps and bounds better having done it. But how do we get the time to do it? How do you fit it in? Um, well, the, the, uh, uh, a couple of things that I've done is, one, don't take three hours because no one's going to sign up for that. Um, but, you know, you can usually steal 10 minutes, 30 minutes. Uh, so far, 30 minutes has been about the top. You know, like, well, come down. You're just going to have a coffee. You know, pick the right time of day when there probably things are slow. Uh, and then have a specific and focused test, you know, or, or whatever you want to study all set up so it's ready to go because you don't want to waste their time. You want to make it valuable. You want to make sure that they see the value and, you know, go on and on about how 
you know, this is going to help you do the documentation. You'll send them an update. You know, you know, thanks to your feedback, we added this and this. You know, so that they get some some uh, you know feedback that their time wasn't wasted. It wasn't just them talking to you and nothing happening because uh, they'll pick up on that really quick. But so thirty minutes it, that does sound reasonable, right? People go on walks yeah. for that long. But um, but here's a problem though. If you have an API, usually these things. Y- there's a lot of setup before people can even be successful, right? They've got to set up a system, keys. They've got to, like, do things. It's complex. It's not like a like an ABC task, right? So so if you have a complex product, what really can you get out of a 30-minute test? Uh, well, then you kind of have to have sort of meta testing, I guess you would call it, is that you might not be able to test the API per se, but you might be able to test sort of how you lay a, lay out the documentation to see if the model's good so that you could then apply that. You know, they could test, you know, kind of leverage their testing, I guess, say that, well, we're testing out this format. You know, how does this look? You know, is this reasonable? And then you might uh, be able to test how you lay out the information. They say, well, you know, this is great, but I always look for this first. Like, oh, well, that's good. We can put that at the top. Um, but you might not be able to test detailed procedures um, you know, there's going to be some things you can't test. And for that, you know, that's, uh, uh, you got to get more creative, I guess. I, I don't know how else to answer that, you know, because there's going to be limits to each, you know, one, if it's a 30 minute window, you can only test 30 minute tasks. Uh, if you have three hour tasks in a 30 minute window, uh, you know, can you break it up? Can you get more than one person to do it? Can they work in shifts? I don't know. You know, can you set things up, say, okay, well, here everything's set up, and now you just need to do the next two steps. Um, that might be an option, you know. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, if, if if you can't get the optimum scenario of someone, you know, like the ideal customer sitting down in front of uh, something for four hours or whatever, well, then you have to start, you know, accommodating. And and the the, the thing to remember in the accommodation is that, okay, well, this isn't going to be as... as high fidelity as we might like so we can only make assumptions within this range as opposed to maybe a, you know a more focused range if you have a more uh, elaborate test environment does that make sense well, you know it's, uh, it's yeah, understanding yeah. the limitations I, of your test scenario basically i'm kind of curious to know if if you've uh, had some common observations while you're doing testing i i've done some some testing of my documentation in the past. We we at a former company we had a usability lab and a usability team, and we were pretty buddy buddy with the usability team and got to kind of observe them, and, and even kind of um, watch them foray into the documentation and explore it and 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 try to use it. Um, and it was always very eye opening. Um, some things I observed were that novices. Were drawn to video, but experts didn't ever touch video. They they quickly skimmed and kind of searched through. Uh, do you have any kind of observations that you have found from observing testing? Mm, well, you know, unfortunately, I haven't had a chance to to do a lot of observation to make generalizations. Uh, the only, I guess, the only common thing is that each time uh, I leave the testing with another assumption broken, it's like. Uh, well, I'm glad we learned this because that's not what we were thinking. Uh, and so, you know, I guess uh, that it, it, it reinforces the, the importance of going back to the user as often as you can because it's really easy for, um, you know, your assumptions to start wandering off uh, in the absence of, you know, realignment, you know, if, you know, well, the, the user does this or the, the developer's assuming this or we're assuming that all developers know this, you know, and it's easy to start, those start collecting uh, and you need to go back and validate them frequently uh, to keep them in line because they're also moving and they might not be moving in the direction that you are. And so it's it's important to stay in step. Yeah, I like that answer about um, always, always finding an assumption to be wrong. Um, I... Uh, you know, it's hard doing API documentation when I, I don't have a developer background, so I'm constantly guessing 
well, you know, yeah, this person probably already has their server set up and, you know, their things are probably humming along and they're just adding our product in, right? I don't know, really. Uh, so I think uh, you know, testing would really, really um, shed some light on, on the validity of the assumptions. Well, I've uh, asked you a lot of questions about this. Let me see. Uh, I'm hoping to publish the this podcast pretty soon uh within a day or two so hopefully it'll come out before before your your talk um what uh let's see what questions haven't i asked you that that you want me to oh. ask or that you want to answer <laughs> oh ask me this no um well you know i guess the the one thing and looking over your questions the um uh i i think the one thing that kept coming up was the um the audience product and market and, and i think i might play with that a little bit because uh, those are those factors I think need to be understood uh, in order to come up with the right mix of documentation I, I, because you know having uh, knowing just the audience isn't sufficient it's important but you need to know how the product and the audience mix you know how you know is it is one new to the other? Are they both old friends and they're just kind of getting a new you know re refreshing, uh, or is this a totally new area or is this a totally new audience? All of that has a big impact on what sort of documentation you would deliver and how you would deliver it. And then add in the market. You know maybe you know like we said at the very beginning, you know maybe credibility and appearance are very important because you're trying to draw. A market that could be skeptical, and you need to uh, um, not only show your functionality, but you need to show your credibility and your uh, got a solid foundation and whatnot. Um, but in other cases, that might be totally inappropriate, you know. And so that, you know, to me, I think that makes the job interesting because you know every combination of of those features is going to vary from one thing to the next. From like a management and a production standpoint, that's really annoying. It's like, no, we just we got topics to write. Tell me how to write them, and I'll write them, and we'll, we'll all be happy. It's like, well, I haven't seen the job work that way. Um, it, it's been much more, um, I don't know, nuanced was the word I came up with. But uh, but I think those factors I, come into play more than I've seen them get credit. I, I like that. Um, I like that framework: the audience, product, and market. Um, you know, they, I think that most technical writers would feel pretty comfortable with the product, uh, maybe less so with the market, but the audience always poses this eternal problem. You have novices and advanced users, or you have people who are newbies and people who are veterans at, at the product. How do you solve this problem, especially with something like developer documentation, APIs, where somebody who could be an alpha tech knows the code without even looking at the docs and and there's a new person who needs a lot of hand holding you know how do you write documentation that that serves both audiences well, i think that's where the pro the the, the market and uh, you know the product come into play to help break that uh log jammer that you know the is that so i i don't think any market's going to be uniformly newbies and experts uh i think some are going to be more biased towards one or the other you know so then okay well maybe we have both audiences but we want to get the experienced audience first because they're the technology drivers they're going to adopt it they're going to apply it um or we want to attract this new audience so it's a mostly uh new developers so we're going to focus on them yeah we're going to have experienced developers but they're going to be following you know doing something else that this, this isn't a, a priority to them. So I think understanding who's going to be buying this helps uh, tip the balance on that. Um, because in, I haven't seen it be, you know, like, well, we have 50% new developers and 50% experts. Um, it's usually 90-10 in, in, one, hmm. in one way or the other. You know, and maybe it's 10% experts, but they have 90% of the decision-making uh, or they're going to have 90% of the sway in the market. Um, you know, so we'll talk to them first. Um, you know, so I think that context has seemed to be more relevant, um, you know, than trying to please everybody because that's, that's almost always doomed to fail. Uh, cause we, you know, 
you know as well as anybody, we, we never have time to please even one audience, let alone all of them. And, uh, and so, so I think uh, the market and the product relationship to the audience uh, is what I would use to you know, help uh, tip the balance on that. Yeah, no, I, I really like that market angle because it, it I mean, it, it adds this dimension to the tech writer role that engineers don't usually have, right? It's this awareness of of the market um, and the needs there. It's like the product management insight. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, the, the, the so, product management and the people that actually talk to the customers are probably your best friends if you can't talk to them yourselves. Uh, because yeah. you know their you know their 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 view their view is going to be a little filtered, but at least they they're, they're your only second person, uh, you know one 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 level of uh, uh, of indirection as opposed to fourteen or whatever or you know have no interaction with the customer, you know they're at least you know they they'll have at least some direct customer feedback. You know I still think it's important uh, for for tech writers to get you know. Uh, get out and meet the customers because uh, that's always an eye-opening experience, but it's also kind of a rare experience in my, uh, uh, from what I've seen. So, uh, but uh, you know, if if I, if I could change one thing, I think that would be uh, on the list. So, Bob, uh, what website can you point people to uh, for more information? You mentioned that you you had some of these things on your website. Oh. Um, and maybe other resources that you want to mention. Well, the uh, my website's docs docsbydesign.com, dot com, d o c s by design, uh, all one word. And um, for other resources, um, uh, let's say somebody wants to read your paper or learn more about your PhD or the program. Well, that's kind of dribbling out in my blog, uh, as I can write stuff. Uh, so the the website's probably the best place to start, and I have links to papers as I get, as I publish the papers, I put links up there. So um, that's uh, okay. And and my next project is to try to make some of this academic stuff a little more suitable for practitioners because those are two different audiences uh, as well. Well, I was really excited to to find that your your focus was so much on APIs, and you you've done a lot of contributions in that. So thank you for all that. Um, and thanks for doing this podcast. Uh, um, yeah, I'll post it on I'dRatherBeWriting.com, and you can link to it on your site, embed it wherever you want, and uh, try to increase the knowledge um, and, and awareness of all the research you've done. Well, thanks. It's been fun talking to you.